Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. President Biden delivers his first speech to a joint session of Congress. We're the United States of America. There's not a single thing, nothing, nothing beyond our capacity. We can do whatever we set our minds to if we do it together. From Gray Davis to Gavin Newsom, another recall effort is underway in California. Given the era of social media, given the easy way to get on the ballot, you could see potentially hundreds of people on the ballot and you could see a number of celebrities. Plus, the results of the census are in, who's winning and who's losing as a result. But first, the 2021 Washington legislative session is over, and there are many things you could talk about, whether it's progress on climate change or the capital gains tax that many deride as an income tax. But today we're going to be talking about the Blake response. And if you're not sure what the Blake decision is, that was the decision by the state Supreme Court that came mid-session saying that simple possession of drugs, at least how it's written in Washington state law, was unconstitutional. That created a whole mess and a huge response from lawmakers. Joining me now is Kimo's Matt Markovich, who has been following all of this since mm-hmm. this began. And uh, in the last days of the session, they did pass what they call a fix to the Blake decision. What exactly was it? It's like you said, uh, there was a big hole in the state law that basically said anyone caught with a controlled substance like heroin, cocaine, uh, Oxycontin, pain pills, you name it, all those Schedule One drugs, um, if you had simple possession, had that on your possession, the what the Supreme Court ruled was that there is no law on that. You can be having, you can have it on your possession. The local police could not arrest you, and that left this gigantic gap. It actually commuted some sentence uh, sentencings in the in our state. Thirteen people were released from state prison. A lot of others were released from county jail. There's going to be thousands of resentencings because this law was basically a null and void from the get-go 50 years ago. And so this was all because the word knowingly wasn't in the statute. That's right. You know, I won't go into the case, but you had to know that you had this kind of uh, on you. Uh, so one simple fix would have just simply put the word knowingly back in the law. But no, lawmakers didn't want to do that. They want to. They wanted to strive for something bigger. They wanted to look at reform and how how we can have reform. Well, let's be clear. Democratic lawmakers. Yeah. Yeah, wanted to right. do that. So that's Republicans right. wanted to just put that one word back in, but they they're in the minority. They that's correct. That right. You know, so the D's lead. So um, so what they ended up in doing is first they originally tried a Monger Dinger, saying Senator Monger Dinger from uh, uh, Redmond. She's the one whose bill actually made it through. There was other bills like you putting the word knowing back in, but her bill actually the Democratic bill made it through the Senate. And originally she wanted uh, that there would be. Sp- legalize basically these amounts so you can have small amounts of heroin cocaine pills mushrooms whatever you want to call it um, and that would be legalized but that just didn't cut it you know she wanted some treatment money involved in that they came up with a big compromise after it went through the house and everything else and what came down to it became a misdemeanor some wanted a gross misdemeanor which is a year in jail but now the, the new rule is if you're caught with these drugs, it's a misdemeanor, smallest level of crime in a, in a way. And it was a felony before, correct? It was, it was a Class C felony. Uh, the way it, Class C felony worked in this state is basically you got six months in jail if you were caught with that. But this is a misdemeanor, a simple misdemeanor. So that meant a $1,000 fine and 90 days in jail max. So that's what's going forward. You have that. That's what the legislature passed. They also passed 90 million to fix all those other cases we I just talked about. 
as well as some behavioral and treatment substance services and a diversion programs in Seattle we call LEAD, uh, Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion, where uh, an officer finds someone and they don't go to jail. Uh, and that's real important about this legislative fix. The people who are found to be in possession of these illegal drugs with a misdemeanor, the first two times you're caught, you don't go to jail. Police are supposed to take you to a diversion program like LEAD, Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion, like they have in Seattle and King County. Five counties have a LEAD-type program, but most of the state does not. We've got 39 counties in the state, yeah. and only five have those programs. So so what are these other counties going to do? Well, that's what the Republicans are saying. This is so misguided. What is a police officer going to do? Drive you to the local treatment center? It's the Republicans saying uh, it just doesn't have the guts that it really needs to be effective. And that's been the criticism of the bill. So they're not logged. They're not booked. There's no right. record. Yeah. Is there going to be a database? How are the, how's the officer arresting officer going to know if this person's been stopped twice for simple possession before? Good question. I don't know how to answer that one. You know, and each jurisdiction is different. This is a statewide law now, so it supersedes what maybe other jurisdictions were already passing because of this gap. Cities like Bonnie Lake, uh, Lewis County, you know, a county at the county level, uh, Marysville pass their own drug possession laws, making it a misdemeanor, which is what they could do. And this was before the state passed This was before the state compromise. So what this bill does, even though maybe some of these city laws are a little bit tougher than what the state just passed, this bill has no preemption. So a local uh, jurisdiction like Marysville doesn't preempt what the lawmakers passed just a week ago. So you have this patchwork of laws, which is not entirely unusual when you, you go from state to state, but a little more unusual when you go from county to county. And it seems that while well-intentioned, as with many laws, you know, you get a number of amendments, you get all sorts of debates, it tends to get watered down. And now comes the hard part, implementing it. Yeah. So what's the governor going to do? Because now it falls on his desk on, to implement the law. Well, I mean, he's got to sign it first. We're expecting him to sign it. He gave every indication at his last public address that he would go ahead and sign this bill. So it's not technically law yet, but it's one of those immediate ones. As soon as he signs it, it's effective immediately. And police officers now can go out and basically arrest somebody but not take them to jail for the mm -hmm. first two times. And then the way the law is written, it's left up to the discretion of the prosecutor on the third time. The third time, the prosecutor can bring charges or continue a diversion program. You know, so every time... But isn't that what they do anyway, you know, with the way the law was? I mean, the prosecutor always has prosecutorial discretion. Yeah, but now he doesn't have any discretion. That's usually on the first try, right? Uh. So now on the third try, the law is written, so hey, we encourage you to have try and get people not in the criminal justice system, but try and get them into behavioral treatment or substance abuse treatment if they need it and they're accepting of it. Now, if they don't accept it, then that person basically starts going down the path of the criminal justice system as we know it right now. But the, the, the uh, crime is a misdemeanor. What's interesting is this is what I heard from the city attorney's office here in Seattle. Uh, when I asked if the city attorney is going to prosecute these new criminal drug charges, which are now misdemeanors, where the city prosecutor never had to deal with that because it was always a felony, mm -hmm. which is the county prosecutor or district court. Um, the city attorney here in Seattle said, no, we can't do anything unless the city council enables a local municipal version of what the state law passed. So what the state the legislature passed. So in order for the city attorney in Seattle to charge somebody with drug possession as a misdemeanor, which is what 
the city attorney tends to have, he has to have enabling legislation by the city council. So now it becomes a political question. Does the city council want to enable what the state law, the state legislature just did, a very liberal city council here who may not want to do that. They may not want to charge anybody in the city of Seattle with simple possession. And the, the city attorney can't do that without the city council saying okay. So so let me see if I can sum all of this up, because there's a lot going on here. Initially, simple possession. This is not possession with intent to distribute. That's a separate crime. Right. Mm-hmm. Simple possession. You had small amount of heroin on you. That was a felony, and you'd get prosecuted for that first time. Under this new law, the first two times, not even a crime, and the third time is a misdemeanor, and even then the prosecutor can say, well, we're not going to charge you. We're going to send you to a diversionary program. Compound that, you have to have enabling legislation in the local jurisdictions in order to make it work. Yeah. So the county, That is a mess. Yeah. So the county prosecutor does still have the discretion here, which would in King County would be Dan Satterberg. He can charge somebody on a misdemeanor level in district court, which is not superior court. So we're talking about three different courts here. So it becomes on the onus of the county prosecutor to decide whether this person should go to jail or go through treatment or everything else. So it becomes, and they're already got 10,000 cases on a backlog right now. So it, it can go through district court that you can charge someone with a misdemeanor. You can't do it in superior court because that's only felonies. So, which goes back to the municipal court, which is tends to deal with misdemeanors. Now, not just Seattle, but if you if we're assuming what the city attorney's office told me is correct for every municipality in the state of Washington, every city council has to do the same thing that the city council of Seattle would have to do to pass enabling legislation so their local police can arrest and send it to the city prosecutor for that case. Well, then you'd have to have similar legislation for unincorporated parts of various counties. The counties would have to pass similar legislation. Mm -hmm. Has there been any talk since this was passed in the last days of the state legislative session that this wasn't really a good idea? Has there been any pushback other than from Republicans, or was it straight party line? I think what sold it was it's a stopgap. It has a sunset clause, which means in two years... It becomes null and void. The, 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 so we're right back to where we were right. in two years. So in two, part of the legislation is that in the state, there'll be set up a committee of stakeholders, and that's obviously going to be primarily behavioral and substance abuse treaters, as well as uh, police and fire and prosecutors. They're supposed to get together in a committee and decide what should go forward, what kind of bill we should have. Should we have a law? Do it, What does it need to say? They have two years to do that until this law that just passed sunsets and goes basically disappears. If they don't come up with something in, by 2023, we're back where we are at this very moment with nothing on the books, and local police can cannot arrest anybody for simple possession. I should back up for a second. I make a point by saying local police, because there's still a federal drug mm-hmm. law. The FBI could come and raid you. A federal agent. You. I just talked to a postal inspector. A postal mm-hmm. inspector can arrest somebody with a bag of heroin on the street just sitting there. But as it stands at this moment, because the judge, uh, because Inslee hasn't signed the bill, local police can see that same person and do nothing. But the federal postal inspector, FBI agent, or any federal agent can arrest them on federal charges and do that. Wow, this is going to be quite the two years as people try to sort out this law. And I think what the main intent was 
They want to have something other than the criminal justice system as we know it to have go through jail and they keep on going in and out of jail for a simple possession crime, so-called nonviolent crime. They want to find a treatment path like everybody else, treat the, the root of the cause, which is substance abuse, and get people into substance abuse rather than into a jail system, which most believe does not work and no, has no rehabilitation efforts. All right, Matt Markovich, thank you so much. You're welcome. Coming up next, another recall is underway, and could a porn star become the next governor of California? When the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. The latest recall effort against a California governor is moving forward, but what is all of this about, and what's the likelihood we're going to see another governor in the near future? Joining me now, ABC News' Alex Stone from Los Angeles, and uh, let's kind of reset this for our uh, Seattle listeners and those of us here in the Northwest. What's this all about? How did this start? Well, if you go back uh, a year, uh, Governor Newsom and and Cuomo in, in New York, they were seen as kind of these rock star Democrat governors who were doing a lot to put rules in place, trying to, to clamp down on COVID. And at least uh, among Democrats, they were seen as very proactive. But as time went on, uh, Republicans saw a lot of those restrictions as something to, to grab onto to say, look, that that Newsom and, and Cuomo, but specifically Newsom, that uh, he's shutting down business, that he's killing the economy of California, uh, that, that he's not doing you any good right now. And they were able to get a, a lot of momentum that way. There have been numerous attempts to recall Governor Newsom. This is the only one that has gotten this far, that they've got enough signatures that, that now they're actually going to get a, a, a recall vote out of it, most likely. Uh, but the, the real point where things changed was in November when Newsom was going on TV and radio every day saying, do not leave your home, that the virus levels were to a point where it was dangerous to go out. And then he was caught out at the French Laundry restaurant in Napa County having a very swanky birthday dinner with a group of friends and no mask on. And that's really what everything comes back to now, where even his supporters before saying, yeah, but he's a hypocrite. He was telling us you cannot leave your home. And he was at a, a party at a very pricey restaurant, masks off and enjoying himself there. So there has been some crossover of party lines of those who have supported this, but still highly unlikely that it was easy to get relatively easy. 1.6 million signatures going to be a lot more difficult in this very blue state to get half of the 22 million registered voters to say that they want to recall Gavin Newsom. That still, yes, there are some very Republican areas in far northern California, very red down the center of California, very red but they are sparsely populated where the population centers are in L.A. and San Francisco. Very, very deep blue. And that's where you're going to have a tough time convincing Democrats that, that they should kick him out of office. And at this point, the polling indicates that it's not very likely, but there's a long time to go. We've got months before the vote will actually go. So things could change. But as of right now, it looks highly unlikely. Now, up here in Washington State, you know, we have a number of uh, efforts to recall a number of elected officials going on right now, and we've seen them go to the state Supreme Court. And under Washington state law, to recall a public official, you have to have a finding that's legally and factually sufficient by a judge. Being a hypocrite isn't against the law. So how does California law talk about this? Because this seems like a very politically motivated recall effort. Well, absolutely. And, and that's the way that Governor Newsom is painting it right now. He's saying this is a Republican-led effort. He has been trying to say that the supporters are QAnon and they are 
uh, white supremacists, and he's been saying they are Trump supporters, which in California, where Donald Trump got only 34, 35 percent of the vote in the last election and Joe Biden got almost 70 percent saying a Trump supporter is is a bad thing among Democrats uh, in California to, to throw that out. In California, you only have to get enough signatures to get it on the ballot. So they got it. They needed one point four million. They got a lot more than that, knowing that not all of them would be verified, that some people were going to sign Mickey Mouse or George Jetson and that some would get kicked out. Some did get kicked out, but down they brought it down. And now we know they verified one point six million. So they've got plenty. Now we go into a 30 day waiting period where anybody who signed the petition has a right to essentially write in and say they want their name taken back. Highly unlikely. Hundreds of thousands of people are going to do that. Uh, and, and then it will move forward. There will be a cost analysis period. Then probably sometime in September, they will set a date for when the election will be, probably in late September, October, November, somewhere around there. Two questions on the ballot. One, uh, should Gavin Newsom be recalled? Two, if yes, who do you want to replace him? And that'll be all there is. And if 50 percent of Californians say yes, he should be recalled, then whoever's name is chosen the most on question number two would become governor. But again, the, the polling would indicate here right now that Gavin Newsom, uh, that, that he will remain in office. But that's what Gray Davis thought in 2003. He kind of laughed it all off. He didn't pay attention to it. And Arnold Schwarzenegger became the governor of California. Newsom knows he can't do that. He is ramping up a campaign right now. Uh, he's hiring people that, that he knows he has to take it seriously or in a few months when people actually go and, and fill out their ballot. It could be a very different situation than it is right now. Looking back to that recall effort in 2003 of, of Gray Davis, I recall one of the political strategies by Davis's supporters was to encourage a lot of people to jump into the race to make it look like a sideshow. We had a number of celebrities. We had porn stars running for governor just to make it look like a joke. Are we seeing the same thing this time around? Well, we are. And it doesn't seem like that uh, that it's Newsom's team trying to get that to happen. It's just happening. You're, you're getting some of the same names in there. Uh, Mary Carey, the, the now former porn star who's back in it, she says she's now a serious candidate and not just doing it for the publicity. But every time she gives an interview, it's full of innuendo and and one liners that she's got about what she would and wouldn't do that to, to go back to her former career. So is she serious? She claims she is. And then Caitlyn Jenner, uh, kind of the the more front runner at this point, if there is one uh, well-known Republican uh, Olympic athlete. But then you've got uh, Democrats like Representative Karen Bass who say, and, and she's been criticized for this, that she does not believe that Republicans would really vote for a trans woman to be in, in office. She just doesn't see Republicans doing that based on some of their, their legislation uh, nationwide. Then there's some other names that are former mayors of San Diego and, and elsewhere. But there's a real belief here that, that as this gets going, then more and more of these celebrity names, all uh, you know, three, the Arnold Schwarzeneggers, you know, the the Mary Carries, that more folks are going to jump in because they do get recognition and it's free publicity out of it. But right now we've got Mary Carey and Caitlyn Jenner and then a bunch of politicians getting into it. We'll have to see where it goes from here. Democrats still siding with the incumbent? Yeah, I mean, at this point, uh, Democrats, at least the, the latest polling was about 54 percent of Californians in general said that, that they wanted to keep uh, Gavin Newsom in office. Only 30 some percent saying that, that they definitely that they want to recall him. And those numbers are, are going to fluctuate. But you got to remember that 
Gavin Newsom won by a landslide a couple of years ago. He was extremely popular at that time. And this is still, despite those Republicans areas, such a, a blue state. His favorability rating right now is still relatively high. It just seems unlikely that if it were held right now that he would be recalled. But a lot can change between now and let's say whenever the, the data said October, November, December, that a lot could change between now and then. So that's why he's out campaigning and hiring staff and holding events. This is going to be a very long next couple of months for him and for anybody who seriously runs and holds events because we're getting into a, a full campaign again, and, and he knows that. All right, ABC's Alex Stone from Los Angeles. Thank you so much for your time. You got it. Sounds good. Thanks, Jeff. Still to come, the results of the U.S. Census are in. Who gets more power and how it changes the political landscape when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. The U.S. Census has released the data from the 2020 count today, and at least the initial data, and it looks like Washington state is remaining the same with 10 congressional seats. Texas, the big winner, gaining two. But overall, what does this mean for politics? What does this mean for the balance of power, the Electoral College, and the U.S. House of Representatives? Joining me now is ABC's Alex Prechet. And uh, first off, are we seeing any major shifts here in terms of population? Well, Jeff, I don't know if there's any major shifts if there were to be a, a winner gleaned from um, this this census data. I, I suppose it's it's Republicans because you see some 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 gains in in the South and in in the West, and certainly Texas picking up in Florida as well. But but again, these are these are kind of minimal shifts and. The only other other reason why, why why I'd lean in and say that you know maybe Republicans are, are are winning based off of this is because we also know the history whenever it comes to to midterm elections right and, and generally when there's a party that has all uh, both the executive and both houses of Congress the upcoming midterm there's usually a a, a swing and so you know seeing Texas gain uh, in Florida as well it would signal a potential favorable. Uh, outcome for Republicans uh, coming up on the midterms. But again, I mean, we're talking about some 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 very kind of uh, minimal swings here. And, and it's certainly more important when it comes to the Electoral College, because Texas may be gaining two seats, but exactly where are those seats? Are they in Houston or Austin or Dallas, where they're more liberal than the rest of the state? Just because there are two additional seats going to Texas doesn't mean they're going to be conservative, right? No, it doesn't. But also, you know, this is where redistricting comes in, uh, comes into play and, and and certainly you know we've we've seen you know Texas politics play out you know during this this, this past election um even whenever it comes to uh to to to, to how how voting's handled so i mean i i think that I mean, you can kind of glean from 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 that where where, where things might might head but you're absolutely right we we don't know um, how that's ultimately going to play out but there is something that is kind of interesting here you know we talked about places that are that are that are gaining and losing this is the first time ever that California's lost a seat. Uh, so um, certainly, certainly kind of uh, new, new ground there. And, uh, and, and also and something else that uh, kind of gleaned from the Census Bureau data is this is the second slowest growth of U.S. population ever. We're about 331 million Americans now. Um, it's a it's a 7.4 increase. Again, the second slowest growth ever. What are we looking at as far as some of the other states? Uh, we saw Oregon gain a state, so that's probably the biggest the significant change here in the, in the Northwest. But uh, were there any other surprises? We've got Colorado, Montana, and Oregon 
all adding or gaining seats, but also losing seats. We've got Illinois, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. And what's interesting about three of those is you think about Illinois, Michigan, Pennsylvania. I mean, these all played critical roles in in the last national election that we had. So it looks like some of these Midwest swing states are, are gaining less power in the electoral college. Does that mean we're, we're starting to become a little bit more polarized, at least when it comes to the count? Well, I think certainly you're seeing you're seeing the power kind of galvanize elsewhere. Right. Um, You know, will Pennsylvania play as critical of a role? The data suggests slightly not as much. Right. Um, The same the same for 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 Michigan or or in Illinois. But when you think about a Florida picking up. Uh, you know, Florida, Florida is, you know, the, the definition of a swing state. North Carolina is another one. Um, so I think while the power might not be concentrated in some of those Midwest swing states as much, you're seeing it added into some of the southern ones. All right, ABC's Alex Perche, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Coming up, President Biden speaks to a joint session of Congress. But did his message fall on deaf ears when the Como Politicast continues? after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Well, technically not a State of the Union address, President Biden went before a joint session of Congress to mark his first 100 days in office. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field. And what was the president's overarching message? Well, the the message was that basically the country was on fire when he walked on the door and he's done a pretty good job of putting it out. He wants to keep doing that. Despite the fact that Republicans don't like what they're hearing from President Biden, uh, poll after poll after the speech yesterday shows a, an overwhelming number of Americans did like what they heard. But of course, there's not a whole lot not to like when someone is standing up there saying, here's a whole bunch of free stuff I'm going to give you. Why wouldn't you like it? Uh, free education for kids in preschool, uh, free education for two years of community college, uh, new roads, new bridges, internet, new pipes, all kinds of things that are fantastic, but they cost something. And that's where the big sticking point is, because President Biden says he wants to pay for it by taxing the rich. And uh, Republicans don't seem to have uh, actually any way to pay for it. And they don't think they need to do all this stuff. They just want to build roads, bridges and, and trains and say that's infrastructure and be done with it. Ever since he was elected, President Biden's been pulled in two different directions. Now, if you look at his career, you could probably describe him as a moderate, but a lot of the progressives in the Democratic Party seem to get what they want last night. Uh, they did, and uh, certainly it's good for progressives in the party, but it's good for a lot of people who don't have some of the advantages of, of some of the wealthier people in the country. The president's proposals when it comes to taxes, you know, the Republicans saying this is extreme, this is terrible. It's far less than what most wealthy Americans and certainly corporations were taxed uh, when Donald Trump came into office. I think the tax rate was upwards for corporations, upwards of 30 some odd percent, maybe 35 percent. I don't know the exact number for me. They basically chopped that tree down to 23 percent. Joe Biden just wants to get it back up to, you know, just below 30 percent, significantly lower than it was before. But at that rate, you can gather billions upon billions of dollars to pay for all this infrastructure that he wants to pay for. The Republicans have never met a tax they liked, uh, never had a tax cut that they wanted to repeal. And that is an issue there because no one has a real good compromise on how to pay for all this. The problem here is, are they going to do it with a bipartisan majority back and forth? Or are they going to do it like they did with the COVID relief plan, which was through reconciliation, this kind of arcane law that says the Senate can pass it with just one vote. And the Democrats can do that if they wanted to. 
And Joe Biden may actually pick that choice because he only has a very short window of opportunity to get everything done. Because if the uh, Republicans pick up seats in the next election, in the midterm election, that means that the Democratic majorities could wither or disappear entirely in in the House and Senate. And then we saw Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina give the Republican response. What did he have to say? Well, he basically said he didn't like what (laughs) the president was proposing. He says it's just a bunch of socialism and and wasted money. Of course, that is the Republican Party line in all this here. One of the things he said that was um, interesting because he is the only African-American Republican senator. Uh, you know, he said there is no, the United States is not a racist country. Now, Kamala Harris said, indeed, she doesn't think uh, the country is a racist country either. I don't think Joe Biden said that. He did say white supremacy in this country is a terrorist threat that we have to take very seriously. And of course, we've seen that growing threat over the last couple of years. Uh, but it was odd to hear the only black Republican senator talking about racism as if it doesn't exist. And in fact, he even said it himself. And there's a speech on the Senate floor that he gave just a couple of years ago where he said even he has been pulled over several times for driving a nice car, for nothing else but driving a nice car. He goes, we've got to fix these problems. So he knows the problems there, but he's also representing a, a party that in large part is trying to say it's not a bigger problem as 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 many people think it is. Well, and typically after a speech of this nature, the president uh, will head out on, on tour for about a week or so and trying to push his agenda. Where's the president off to now? What's he doing? He's in Georgia, and his first stop was to see former President Jimmy Carter, who is 96 years old now. Uh, Jimmy Carter, most people would agree, has had a more exemplary and productive post-presidency than he did uh, in office, in his term in office. Joe Biden basically went down to pay respects to him. This is uh, the oldest living president, Jimmy Carter. Spent about 45 minutes at his home in Plains, Georgia. Then he got in a helicopter. He's flying uh, to Gwinnett Airport uh, just outside of Atlanta. And he's going to go state by state to try to get people in those states to pressure their own lawmakers to pass this bill. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Still to come, what exactly constitutes infrastructure? when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. President Biden has hit the road, and that is all too ironic because roads are what he is talking about, infrastructure in particular, and he's trying to spend billions, if not trillions, on rebuilding the nation's crumbling roads and bridges. But there is some resistance to that plan. Joining me now, ABC's Andrew Dimberg from Washington, D.C. And uh, first off, let's talk about uh, the Biden plan. He gave that speech to the the joint session of Congress earlier in the week, and, and now he's out uh, pushing for his agenda. And essentially what he's calling for is $4 trillion about in new spending, and that would be between two major pieces of legislation, one focusing on infrastructure, another focusing on education and child care. And ultimately, look, it's going to be up to Congress to hash out these robust and costly policy plans. But right now, the Biden administration is taking this pitch for these plans directly to the American people, trying to educate and explain how his administration believes that these plans will really benefit everyday Americans and their communities. And he's going to those areas, to those communities that he thinks could benefit the most. For example, going to Philadelphia to help Amtrak celebrate not only its 50 years of service at its busy 30th Street station, but also to to highlight that that Northeast Corridor, for example, that that railway that connects essentially Washington, D.C. to New York City with stops in Philadelphia, needs some major upgrades and major investments. So 
the White House is on tour, if you will, almost almost like a, like a campaign tour. And in a lot of ways, it is just not for a candidate, but for policy. Now, infrastructure has always been a big thing for presidents in, in the Congress. There's a lot of talk yeah. of it. The last several presidents have wanted to do something on infrastructure. And of course, former President Trump had the infamous infrastructure week that never happened. So why is this time different? The makeup of the House and the Senate right now, Democrats are in control, even though the Senate is a 50-50 split with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris breaking the tie here. That could be something that's different. But also, there does seem to be more of an appetite from Congress to get some sort of deal done. Now, look, make no mistake about it, uh, GOP lawmakers have already expressed opposition to Biden's infrastructure plan, but really only for the price tag and saying that it's not targeted enough uh, towards rebuilding this nation's railways and roadways and bridges. So, you know, the question now is, can President Biden reach across the aisle, meet in the middle. Right now, he's trying to convince middle America that his plans are the right path. And we re- we're still in the infancy here. We will have to wait and see how lawmakers feel here. And again, if President Biden will be willing to come down on the $2.3 trillion plan for infrastructure, that's what the price tag is right now. Would he be willing to come down and meet Republicans? We'll have to wait and see. Right now, he's meeting Americans and trying to showcase and educate why these plans would specifically help everyday Americans, especially in their commute to and from work. How big of a problem is the nation's infrastructure? You know, it's hard to say, but when you have in a politically fractured Washington, when you have Republicans and Democrats essentially across the board agreeing that this is an issue, it's got to be pretty bad, right? Just give you Amtrak, for example, here. Uh, President Stephen Gardner had said earlier that, you know, they needed financial assistance from President Biden's pandemic relief plan, and that alone allowed the rail service to bring back 1,200 employees who had been furloughed. This was a problem before the coronavirus pandemic, so you've got to think that COVID-19 really kind of sped up the need. And then, of course, there's the ongoing debate, what constitutes infrastructure? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting one, because I think both sides of the aisle can agree, roads, bridges, and railways, that's easy. But then you start to talk about things like like broadband, and uh, there are other components of the 23 trillion dollar plan that Republicans say, wait, hold on, time out. Uh, Yes, maybe we do need to address those, but we don't think that those specifically fall into the category of infrastructure. And that could be a roadblock on President Joe Biden's mission to get bipartisan support for this deal. Right now, he's trying to get support from Americans, but getting bipartisan support, that could potentially be a holdup in addition to the overall price tag. And I think that when we actually see this in the form of legislation and debates and amendments, starting with the House and then the Senate, we'll get a clearer picture. But what's also interesting is how uh, the president has made attempts and really has reached out to Republican lawmakers as well, inviting them to the Oval Office in terms of getting this infrastructure plan done. Uh, He says that he is listening to the other side of the aisle, seeing what they want. How can they make this bill more targeted? So far, there haven't been any changes that we can report on, that this is still uh, a very robust plan. But these are some of the things that you know, could slow this down or even stop it in its tracks. Is there even a bill in the Congress yet, or has that even not been introduced? Yes and no. Um, like I said, there there are going to be changes here, and this could this actually could take months, 
if not even longer. If you go back to COVID-19 relief, seeing that the government spent over $2 trillion in such a short amount of time, that was that was different, right? And especially with the last coronavirus relief plan under President Biden, um, you know, when when Democrats used budget reconciliation to go around Republicans, they did that because there was a need. There was federal unemployment benefits were expiring. There was a really a race against the clock when it came to coronavirus pandemic. Now, when you get to infrastructure, although it is a problem and it is a clock that is ticking, there's not so much deadline pressure here. So we could anticipate several changes. And then, of course, if Democrats want to go through budget reconciliation again for infrastructure, that could be put in a in a different sort of bill because it would only key components of it. It gets a little bit complicated there. But this is what the president has ahead of him, he said, and campaigned on bipartisanship. And this is really going to be the first true test, in my opinion, of whether he can get that bipartisanship done, because COVID-19, again, was, you know, that was a race against time, a race against the clock. And uh, here with infrastructure, it's a little bit different. The president does have some time here, as do House and Senate lawmakers. But that is something that we're watching closely here in Washington moving forward. All right, ABC's Andrew Dimber, thank you so much. Thank you. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out some of our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and for health, wellness, and more, take a listen to the Fit Mess with Jeremy Grader. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening and have a good week.